Good morning, everyone. Great to have you here. Uh, as Rich said, I'm Matt. If you don't know me, I'm one of the leaders here at Liberty Church. Uh, really glad that you found us this morning. Uh, we know that walking into a big building like this can be an awkward experience, particularly if you don't know anyone here. So it's great to have you here with us. We do hope that you feel at home amongst us. As Rich said, if you have any questions, we'd love to get to know you. We'd love to help answer any questions you might have. Uh, what we tend to do every week here at Libby Church is spend a little bit of time studying the Bible together. So if you have a Bible with you, if you want to turn to the book of Acts, don't worry if you don't have a Bible with you, the words are going to appear as if by magic on the screen behind me in a moment or two. We're working through a series in the book of Acts at the moment, and I'm going to read uh, the first six verses of Acts chapter 6. That's Acts chapter 6, verses 1 to 6. It says this, that now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the 12 summoned the full number of disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanea, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we're so grateful that you've brought us here this morning, that we know our lives could have been spinning off in all sorts of different directions. We know our wandering hearts will run to all sorts of different things to keep us happy, all sorts of different things that we'll put our hope in, our trust in. And we know ultimately that the rock that we want to build our lives upon is you, that you're our strength, our fortress, you're the grace we need, you have the power we need, you have all the love that we can see in your life, death and sacrifice for us. We can see that God so loved the world that he gave his only son and now in your resurrection we have life that you sent your spirit on Pentecost Sunday to come and live in our hearts and today we want to rejoice in that wonderful good news we want to realign our hearts with your plans and purposes for our lives. We want to have you speak to us and guide us. So we just ask Holy Spirit right now that you be speaking and moving in this room this morning, we ask. Amen. Amen. Every, every language has its own metaphors. A metaphor is a, a way of trying to describe something, to use a picture, an illustration, to describe something else. So you might say, you know, for instance, life is a roller coaster, or the world is your oyster. Or you might say that Rich has the strength of a bear. Yeah, yeah. Rich agrees with that statement. Yeah, Armstrong, definitely. <laughs> 
But the problem with language is that language has limits to it. And the Bible uses lots of metaphors as well. But what the Bible is trying to do is it's trying to describe something that's real and true. And when it uses its metaphors, it's not just that it's saying, oh, it's a bit like this. Here's a picture to help you try and understand. Often the Bible is actually trying to help us to see a reality that's perhaps even more true than the metaphor itself. But the, our language, our the language we use, whether it's English or Dutch or whatever language you might read your Bible in, it's limited to how far it can express that truth. So you think another example would be uh, in the Dutch language, people often talk about things being gezellig, uh, you know, which to translate that into English is actually quite tricky because you think, oh, it means like cozy. And people think, eh, kind of, but it's actually a bit more than that. And people use that word in all sorts of different contexts. And it's a very difficult word to actually describe, to translate properly into English. And it's the same thing with metaphors. They just don't quite get it. And one of the big metaphors that the Bible uses that's applicable to our passage today is it describes the church as a body, as a, a living body with Christ as the head. And we're all feet and hands and knees and toenails the church is a, a body that we're one flesh with Christ that we have this union with God together as his people and this idea of the church being uh, a body is actually it's more than a metaphor if I was to say rich has the strength of a bear we actually know that's not true you know like he might be strong, he might be stronger than a normal person, that might be what we're trying to say, but if Rich fought a bear, like a, you know, a big bear, like a big brown bear, I think you'd probably lose. Would that, would that be fair? It's debatable. It's, it's debatable, he thinks, I think he would lose. You know, it's, not, it's not true, but when we describe the church as a body, in a way that we can't understand, the Bible's not saying, oh, the church is a bit like that. The church is saying, no, it, it is that. The church is is the body of Christ. Uh, it talks about it in, in Ephesians 5. It says it's, it's a mystery. We can't quite get our heads around it, but somehow it's true. And if you read the language that the Bible uses to describe this idea, first of all, it's very personal. Jesus says this himself in John 17. He says, in John 17 is a prayer that Jesus prays to his Father in heaven. And he says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. There's this beautiful intimacy that Jesus is praying here that he's trying to describe. That us, his people, his disciples, that he loves us the same way that the Father loves the Son. And that we have a unity with him, that we're together in him, 
In the same way that Jesus is united with the Father, that now his people are united with him. It's, it's personal, rich language. If you consider the incarnation himself, itself, Jesus coming down from heaven to take on human flesh, to have a human body, to live like one of us, he became one. We become one with him because he first became one with us. That Jesus took on human flesh, he became like one of us, and that, in a sense, unites us into Christ. Paul talks about it in the book of Ephesians again and again and again. It's a wonderful book. He says in verse 22 of Ephesians 1, he put all things under his head and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The idea of the church being a body is not just a picture. It's not just an illustration that the Bible is trying to give us. It's something that's profoundly true and real and accurate in a way that we can't quite get our heads around. It's a spiritual reality that seems a bit of a mystery to us. But what we do know is that it's good news. It talks in Colossians 1 that as a believer in Jesus, we have Christ in us, the hope of glory. That's what it means to be a Christian, a follower of Jesus. It's not just that you're agreeing to an idea or a, a statement of belief or a plan or a philosophy. It's not that even you say, oh, Jesus is, is over here and, and, and I have a relationship with him and, and he loves me. It's no, Jesus is in you. Jesus has come to live, to dwell in us, in his people, to make his forever home in your hearts that you might know him personally, intimately, because he's in you, he's with you. Again, in Ephesians 1, it says in, in chapter 1, uh, again of that, that he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven, things on earth. See, what Jesus came to do with his life, death, and resurrection is not just to save us into heaven or save us into a club of like-minded people, but Jesus came to unite all things in him. All the things that have been broken and divided and split to bring them, to put them all back together again. To fix our broken world, to fix the broken relationships that we all find ourselves in from time to time. He's come to put things all together and this has a great, it's kind of a big cosmic vision but it's also very practical, very real. It talks in chapter three of Ephesians. He says this, the mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body. By Gentiles he means people who aren't Jewish. They're fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise of in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I'm saying all this, which might not seem to have any relevance to the passage I just read. I'm saying all this to paint this picture that the church is supposed to be this unified people who we're united together, not because we share the same belief, we have the same 
idea about what the world should be like, or we've even all read this book that we profess Jesus as our Lord and Savior, but we're united in him because Jesus has died to achieve that. That through his death and resurrection, he's come to put everything back together again. And he's come to create a, uh, uh, the church as his body, that we're united, not just with him, but together in this intimate, as though we're one flesh. And then you find in this passage, just a few weeks, a few months after Jesus' death and resurrection had taken place, this we've been following through in the book of Acts, this story of this church beginning to form, beginning to take shape. The first church that we see in the Bible is beginning to come alive. They're, they've had this, all these threats and persecution that are coming against them in, in Jerusalem. And then suddenly we discover that there are two, two threats to their unity appear in this story. This unity that Jesus has won for them. First of all, there's conflicts here. It says a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So this is a society without any welfare state and without any government way of looking after the poor. So if you had any poor and needy among you, you, you your family had to look after them. And the church here had taken responsibility for feeding the widows. If you're a widow in this society, you would have been cut off from for an income cut off from status. You'd have needed people to provide for you. And you've got these two groups in the church, the Hellenists and the Hebrews. The Hellenists would have been probably Greek speakers who would have been living in Jerusalem but would have spoken Greek, whereas everyone else would have spoken Aramaic. They would have had a different status in society because they're in Jerusalem, the center of the Jewish Hebrew faith. They would have been a lower status. They wouldn't have been allowed to worship in the temple as the other Jews were allowed to do. But what we've learned in Ephesians 3 is that no, Jesus came to unite all these things in him. There's no Gentiles and Jews anymore. God's come to bring all these people together, that they're fellow co-heirs, that they're members of one body. And yet in a very practical thing, they're not being looked after. They're just being ignored, left out, because, oh, you're not like us. This threat appears that there's conflict here in this story. It's, if anything, it's a racial injustice. It's ignoring of everything that Jesus has won for them on the cross. And then another conflict, another issue, another threat to their unity arises because the leaders in this church the 12 disciples that Jesus has appointed, they realize, hold on a second, if, if we have to look after these widows, we're not, gonna, we're not gonna be able to do the thing that we're called to do, to be telling people about Jesus, which might sound like, oh, that's, that's what Christian leaders like to do. They like to sit around with their piles of books and look intelligent. They don't wanna actually do any dirty real work. They just wanna read books and shout at people from stages. But what's, what's going on here is that actually in a sense they're both issues of feeding that the widows weren't being fed and they should be being fed but they're also saying that we, we need to be fed with the word of God they're both issues of feeding and they're not actually it's not even that one issue is in any way 
above the other. The, the disciples here aren't saying, well, preaching's more important than feeding people. Because if you look closely into the original words that the passage uses here, at the end of verse two, when it talks about serving tables, we don't want to give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. And then in verse four, they says, because we want to devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. They seem like two distinct pictures, serving tables, ministry of the word. But in the original Greek, it's serve and ministry is the same word. It's not putting, it's not saying service is here and ministry is here. It's diaconia, it's the same word. There's, there's not that one is greater than the other, one's more important to the other. They both are equally valid. And in their culture, to serve a table was, the table was where the life of the church took place, the life of a community. They wouldn't just come and eat and have a meal, but they would discuss together, they would have fellowship together, they would relate to one another. It's quite an important part of their life was being around table together, enjoying each other and enjoying God together. So they have these two threats that appear, not one's greater than the other, they're both equal threats, but they're both dangerous to the unity of this church community. And in a sense, disunity, things that divide the church, that divide us from one another, they're always dangerous because disunity is, it's never just a surface surface issue disunity normally springs from our rebellious hearts because we think my way is best my way of doing things is better their way of doing things is inferior it's less it's not as good as the way I want to do it what I believe is more important than what they believe what I value is greater than what they value what I want to do is more important than this disunity it actually springs from it's, it's sinful behaviour it comes from our hearts of rebellion where we think our way is best and that doesn't mean that in the church everybody has to agree on everything we're, we're not after uniformity where everyone thinks the same thing there's lots of people in this church who think all sorts of different things about what the Bible teaches even. But the goal is actually unity, that we're united as a people together with people from all sorts of different backgrounds, people who look different, people who sound different, who wear different kinds of clothes, who listen to different types of music, who read different sorts of books, who value all sorts of different things. That's the beauty, the wonder of the church, that you can get all sorts of people from such varied backgrounds that in other parts of the world, would, they'd never even speak to each other. And yet together in the church, we can be brothers and sisters united in Christ together. Now, the disunity that we might find in our church here in Amsterdam today, it will be different from what they were, the issue they were facing here. We don't have hundreds, dozens of widows that we need to provide food for in our church family. But disunity can spring, when it comes from the heart, it will flourish in all sorts of other different places. You know, you'll sometimes find that 
I've made, done this myself, that we can withhold our hearts from other people. We're called to be together as a family, as a church body together, but yet you can make a decision of, I'm not, I don't think I'm gonna be really honest with these people. I don't think I'm gonna be really vulnerable with these people. They can know this bit of my life, but I don't want them to know this bit of my life. We can put up walls around ourselves to protect ourselves. And we might do it even without thinking. It's just, it's just a self-defense mechanism that we've learned. But as soon as we start withholding our lives from other people, the danger is you can begin to create disunity because then that becomes infectious. If you withhold your life from someone, they're most likely to do the same to you. You'll find your relationship will begin to drift apart. Also, we can find that maybe in how we welcome people and how we practice hospitality and how we welcome people into our homes or how we take people out for a, a coffee or whatever we do, that we can, without thinking, we can end up doing that with people who are like us, people that are the same stage of life as us or in the same career as us or going through the same life experiences. And it's challenging to actually be hospitable to those who are, who are different from you. But when you are, it brings unity in a really powerful way. I remember when I was living in Brighton in England about 10 years ago, there was um, a lady in our church. One day during her lunch break for work, she went and had uh, her lunch in, in a graveyard. I don't know why she went to a graveyard, but there she was. And she sat down and had a lunch on a bench in a graveyard. And she got talking to a, a homeless guy who was, I think he was from Kenya, but had found himself homeless in England. And she brought him along to our church. And he met a friend of mine in, in our church, and my friend discovered he was homeless and said, oh, why don't you uh, come this evening and just come and have a, a, a meal with me and my wife? Said, invite him back to his apartment, had him around for a meal. And then they realized he had nowhere to sleep. They said, you just, you just stay here tonight. And, but they lived in a, in a one bedroom apartment. So they just, they didn't say just sleep on the sofa. They put new sheets on their bed. He said, you go and sleep on our bed. And they'd only been married a few months at the time. You sleep on our bed, we'll sleep on the sofa. And it was a wonderful act of hospitality for someone who was very different from them. But what it did, I know this story because the guy who shared this, who, who this happened to, he, he told me about it years later of how it completely changed his life. Because he, he'd come to church on a Sunday and he'd heard you know, the singing and the preacher yapping away. But when he saw that what these Christians believe is really real, that they really will welcome into their home. It's, and it, this wonderful act of hospitality, an act of, of unity, that's what he felt like, oh, I can really be a brother to these people. They're, I'm really part of the family. I'm not just an outcast. And he spent his life living as an outcast and he was suddenly brought in by this wonderful act of kindness. So the threats to unity we might face could be different. But there are some solutions here 
some ways that we can build and find unity in the church family that we see take place in this passage. Uh, And this story, people often use this passage to talk about what leaders in the church are supposed to do because they appoint these seven leaders to, to look after the widows. But I think these are things that we're all called to do in the life of the church. That in Ephesians 4, it says that we're, we're all called to maintain the unity of the Spirit. That the Holy Spirit breathes the unity of Christ into our lives. And then we're commissioned to go and maintain it, to fight for it. And here's some ways we can do it. First of all, it says that... Uh, they picked out from among them seven men of good repute. It means of good honesty, men of integrity. We see that's important because our, our, our honesty, our repute, it's not just about having a good, you know, good PR. It's about the state of your heart. The honesty of someone, the integrity of someone will be a, a signpost to what's really going on in their heart. And as we've been, I was talking earlier about honesty and vulnerability, to be someone of good repute means that you're good at that. You're good at opening up your life to other people. And honesty and vulnerability, they're, they're viral. Once you start doing that within a community, within a group of people, it goes, it goes around. One thing we do as a, as a family, every time we have a, uh, our evening meal together every day, We'll sit down and we'll share our, our highs and lows of the day. And each, all the, all the kids will, me and Joe, will go around and just share, what was the high of the day? What was your low of the day? And uh, sometimes not everyone wants to do it. Sometimes people don't listen to what most times. <laughs> We're not always listening very well to each other, me included. But we've set a habit of doing it day by day, of just wanting to, even just in a tiny little way, just share the good bits and the bad bits of our day with each other as a family. And it sets a tone for what we believe is important in family life. But just as honesty and vulnerability can be viral, so is dishonesty. Some friends of mine were recently on holiday in Morocco and they were telling me of an encounter they had with a, a policeman who pulled them over for speeding and they may have been speeding but only just but he wanted to get some money out of them and it's easy to blame that um, maybe you've been in other countries contexts where that's happened as well that you've been called over for a minor offense and the policeman has demanded cash from you to basically make the problem go away and you can say well that's not right that's unfair how, how does that work it's easy to blame that individual but what's happening is he's part of a system where that's the only way that they can make life work. The, the dishonesty of the systems become viral. It's affected probably the whole of their police force, how they work. And that can happen in, even in church communities. If there's issues that we just to say, well, let's, we're not, we just won't talk about that. Might be issues about sex and sexuality. Let's just not talk about that. Let's pretend it's not an issue. And the battles that people face in their own hearts, we just never open that up. Then that will become the culture of the church, that we just don't talk about those things. If we don't talk about issues of domestic abuse that people might suffer in their homes, we just pretend, we just never, never even mention it. Then people who are suffering, who are feeling the burden, the pain of that, will never feel space or freedom to be able to talk about it. 
Because we don't talk about those things in church. But we want to breed a culture of repute, of honesty, of vulnerability to one another. Secondly, it says, uh, men of good repute, full of the spirit. Another way you could translate that phrase would be under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Talks in Ephesians about being drunk on the spirit, but that's what it is to have the Holy Spirit within you. It's not just like a, like a sample or a, some drips. It's just you're flooded. Elsewhere in the Bible, it talks about being baptized as in, as in when we baptize people in water, we plunge them down into the water and pull them out again and they're completely immersed. That's what it is to receive the Holy Spirit in your life. And we need the Holy Spirit. As I said, it talks in Ephesians 4. We need the Holy Spirit. He's the one that brings the unity of Christ into our church family, and then we're to maintain it. But the Holy Spirit does what we cannot do. In the church family, he unites us together, and he's working all the time on our hearts, creating moments where we can love one another, softening our hearts so we can hear one another, helping us to pray and serve one another. You know, one of the best ways to maintain unity is just to pray for people. Just when someone's winding you up, someone's irritating you, someone's let you down, when you feel betrayed by them, they've said something, they've done something, that why do they do that? My challenge to you would be pray for them. You know, Jesus tells us to pray for our enemies. So if we can pray for our enemies, we can pray for friends who let us down. And I found that when I do that, it begins to change my heart towards that person. Maybe not straight away, but just consistently. I'm just going to keep praying for them. And I know they're frustrating me right now. I know they keep saying the wrong things and they keep winding me up. I'm just going to keep praying for them. Just persevere in praying for other people. You'll find that God will the Holy Spirit will be at work to soften your heart. Okay, we need to speed up a bit. Number three, wisdom. It says, though, full of the Spirit and of wisdom. You see, sometimes issues of disunity, sometimes they're easily fixed. Often, they're complex. You know, this issue sounds easily fixed here. There's some widows being neglected in the daily distribution, so we just need to provide more food for them. We just need people to wait on the tables to, to serve them, which probably was part of the problem, but there appears there's a greater issue going on here. You've got these Hellenists and the Hebrews, these, these uh, people from Greece and people from Jerusalem who were completely, culturally, completely divided and yet they've been called as one people together in Christ. Now to solve that is gonna be complex. And you need the wisdom of God to help navigate through that. Some of the issues of disunity in our city, in our culture, perhaps even in our church, between people of different backgrounds, different ways of, people have had different life experiences, people who've been hurt and abused and looked down upon or overlooked because of the color of their skin, because of their language, because of their upbringing, because of where they came from. They're not easily fixed. We need to learn to listen to one another, to hear people's stories, to have wisdom 
to navigate through. And we can, we can often we'll find ourselves thinking, I don't know the answer to this here. But Christ is the wisdom of God. And that's what we need to come to Jesus and ask for his wisdom, his help. Number four, faith. It's about, it says about Stephen that they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. See, faith is important. I remember a friend of mine has a really helpful saying, and he says, grace thinks the best of people. Grace thinks the best of people. And sometimes to think the best of people, not naivety, not just overlooking people's flaws and faults, but trying not to always think negatively about people's motives and their actions. And that's really an act of faith. We need the faith that only God can give to keep thinking well of people. When I was 19 years old for about nine months, I lived in a house for ex-offenders, people who just come out of prison. Not because I just come out of prison, but I was helping in this house to, to serve them. I was only there for nine months, and there were a number of different guests that came in. But the couple that ran the house, that was their home. They, they lived there. Dave and Tina, that was... That was what they did. Their entire life was welcoming broken, hurt people into the home who would be horrible to them in so many unspeakable ways for three or four months and then move on. That was the pattern again and again. They would just break things. They would bring drugs into the house. They would do all sorts of things that you really wouldn't want to do in someone's home. But they had a remarkable gift of just... I only had to do it for nine months. It was easy for me. And I could walk away feeling like a hero at the end of it. But this was their life, just day after day, week after week, year after year, just serving needy people. And they did it because they had faith. Because God's told us to do this. God said that this is what he wants us to do. So yes, we'll do it. And they could think well of people. They could time and again where they, they could see it coming. They could see where it's going to end up, how the situation is going to play out. But they'd still love people and serve people because they had faith. Number five, we see team here. We have this list of people, Stephen and Philip and et cetera, et cetera, all seven of them. You know, particularly in churches, but everywhere really, we, we need team. The Bible talks about spiritual gifts and there's lots of different ones. You need gifts, you need people. There's a church here at Liberty Church, we don't believe in one man ministry because if that was true, we'd all be in trouble because I'm not very good at it. We need lots of us. We need people with different gifts, different skills, men and women who've, who've got different backgrounds, different experiences, different things that they can offer. The church is a family, and families need mums and dads and brothers and sisters and aunties and smelly uncles, all those sorts of things. And number six, particularly when it comes to leadership, it's, it's sacrificial. It says here in verse six, they set before these men before the apostles and they prayed and they laid hands on them that's what they do that's what we'll do uh, we were supposed to do it we had to cancel it in March when we were going to appoint elders in the church we'd lay hands on them and that idea of laying hands on someone actually comes from the Old Testament where they would lay the high priest would lay his hand on the, the ram the guilt offering and impute the sins of the people onto this thing as a sacrifice They'd lay their hands on it and off it would go. 
In a sense, when they're appointing these leaders, they're sort of doing a very similar thing. That they're not, they're not giving the sin of the people onto these people, but they're, they're making a demonstration that to be a leader is, A, they're laying hands on them because they need the Holy Spirit and they're praying that God would fill them. But also saying it's a sacrificial act, being a leader. A bit like that ram. It's, you're putting other people before yourself. It's not just the call of leaders. We're all called to do that within the church to put other people first, to love each other as we love ourselves, to love people as Jesus loves them. And finally, let me just finish by saying that the, the goal of unity really is not unity itself. The goal of unity is we're expressing this union we have with Christ. And if we understand the union we have with Christ, that we really are one flesh, it talks about in Ephesians 5. The same way as when a husband and wife come together, they're united as one flesh. The church, we are united together as one flesh with Christ. And therefore, to, to slander a brother or sister in the church, to hurt someone else, you're not just hurting them, you're hurting the body of Christ that he's gathered together when we begin to understand the union we have with Christ, it affects how we practice our unity. You see, the, we've been, I started with this metaphor, this picture of the church as this body. But another metaphor the Bible uses to explain the church is, is, is a temple. Christ has sent his dwelling place. Christ in us, the hope of glory. That's the good news for all of us together as the church, but the good news for you personally this morning that he's come to live in your heart no matter what you've done no matter how you feel today because of his grace he's come to make his home in you he wants to know you he wants you to know him to know his goodness his care his love for us he wants to help us to love each other he wants to help us to maintain the unity of the Spirit. He wants to give us all his gifts and strengths to accomplish that. I'm going to pray for us and Joan and Rocky will come and lead us in worship. Why don't you just stand to your feet and uh, if you're comfortable to do that, let me pray for us. In a moment or two, we'll take communion together as well as we sing. There are two bowls either side at the back of the well as well. This is, we do this every week to remember Jesus' uh, life, death, and resurrection for us, his body broken for us, his blood poured out for us. And we remember the union we have because of that now, that we can each say that we have Christ in us, the hope of glory. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you so much for the church, the people of God, that we can't be Christians by ourselves. We're called to be Christians together with other people, to share our lives together, all the highs and lows, the ups and downs, and to comfort one another, to support one another, to pray for one another, to serve one another, just to keep loving one another in all sorts of different ways again and again. And we know as we do that, we're not just being a nice family, but we're expressing your wonderful love for each of us together. We're expressing this unity we have as your body, the body of Christ. And we all just 
uh, will confess that we need help to do that, that we don't want to be honest and vulnerable with the people around us. We don't want them to see the worst bits of our life. And we don't want to often help them when we see that they're needy or when we know it's going to cost us. But we, we want to be a people that fight to maintain the unity of the Spirit, that grow together into this living temple by the Spirit. So we just ask Holy Spirit for your help, that you'd come and help us to love and serve one another. But that would all start with coming and enjoying uh, this wonderful union we have with you that we can all celebrate today, that Christ is in us, the hope of glory. Thank you, Jesus.